Thank you for traveling with Amex Platinum. To your right, you'll see Oceanside Relaxation at a fine hotel and resort property. When booked through Amex Travel, you can enjoy complimentary breakfast for 2 and 4 p.m. late checkout. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. This show is brought to you by SeatGeek, the perfect place to buy and sell tickets. It's the Vertical Podcast with Chris Mannix. Want to welcome everybody in, and we have a great podcast for you today. Brad Stevens, the young head coach of the Boston Celtics, talks about his journey from Butler to the NBA and the biggest adjustments that he had to make going from mid-major college to the highest possible ranks. All that more on the Vertical Podcast with Chris Mannix. Yahoo Sports presents the Vertical Podcast with Chris Mannix. Powered by digital media. Find your voice. And now, your host, Chris Mannix. Welcome back. Vertical Podcast with Chris Mannix. Glad you could join us, and I'm glad you could be here for one of my favorite podcasts of the year. A guy that I've been looking forward to talking to here uh, for quite some time. Uh, That's Celtics head coach Brad Stevens. Brad, uh, first, welcome. And second, I want to ask you about the journey. Uh, you know, a lot of coaches, they have this sort of pivotal moment where they either decide to go into low-level coaching or decide to do something else. Uh, what was your sort of moment where you decided to get into coaching full-time? How close were you to not going the basketball route? Well, I was close because I went into the pharmaceutical industry right out of college. I spent my first nine months out of college at Eli Lilly as a marketing associate, you know, for a Fortune 500 company. And it was an incredible experience. It was an incredible opportunity. I got offered that job as a junior in college, so it was hard to turn down because I didn't know what I wanted to do. After spending a few months in the corporate world, it was pretty clear that I missed the camaraderie and the competitiveness of a locker room and being a part of a team, and I wanted to get back and into coaching. And I was fortunate enough that I had a relationship with Thad Mata, who had just been named the head coach at Butler, now at Ohio State. I had worked camps there every summer, and he was the you know, lead instructor in my station. And so that's who I hung out with. And he offered me the opportunity to come and for me to pay for my own 
schooling so that I could be a graduate manager on a volunteer basis and you know was fortunate to be hired down the road by him and learned a ton that first time that I got in those basketball offices was a real eye-opening experience for me because I learned all that I didn't know you know when you had played high school basketball you play college basketball you think you got the game figured out and I realized that I didn't know anything about coaching I had to learn the details of not only coaching um, not only basketball but how you talk to somebody how important each interaction is how important it is to be right when you explain a game plan whatever the case may be and you know, I'll be indebted to those guys forever because they taught me the right way to do those things. And I'd say the second time I was kind of at a crossroads, which is kind of funny, and, and I won't go into too much detail, but, you know, I kind of thought as as I was nearing my fifth and sixth year as an assistant at Butler, you know, I might really entertain the idea of going back to Division three and trying to be a head coach. And so I actually applied for a D3 head coaching job a week before Coach Licklider left to go to Iowa. And I got a letter in the mail that said I wasn't one of the finalists because I didn't have my master's degree because I had stopped going to school when I got hired full time. And they wanted people, obviously, that, you know, had the ability to teach at the Division three level as well. In Division one, you don't. Literally, the day I got it was the same day that I interviewed for the Butler job. And ultimately, the next day was named the Butler head coach. So, you know, sometimes it's you know, as they say, God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. And, and uh, you know, so I had kind of envisioned myself as a guy that would learn, grow under really good people and go back and be a Division three coach if I was lucky enough to land one of those gigs. And here I am. Give up the name of that school right now. Can't do it. Give up the Won't name and the guy that sent you the rejection letter <laughs> Can't do right it. now so we can all call him. We can all see what's going on. Can't do it. No, I'm not going to do that because you know what? That's what they should do. I mean, if there's if there's a requirement to teach and it's important to have a, a person that's in a coaching situation that will also be teaching classes and they want a person with an extended degree, that's what their school should do and that's what they should stick with. And hey, it's worked out well for me, so I'm pretty happy that with the way it turned out. So you're at Butler and I think a lot of people wondered, you know, when were you going to make the jump to Duke, North Carolina, not those schools specifically, but that type of level. Were you thinking that at the time? And when did the NBA kind of jump into your mind? Well, you know, obviously when you're at a smaller school and you, your team is having success and you've got really good players, then you get opportunities. And so, you know, I was fortunate enough to have a few of those be presented to me for three or four of the six years that I was coaching after the first Final Four throughout the rest of my time there. And each time it just kept going back to man it'd be hard to leave here for another school um, because it really was not only where I had cut my teeth but it was also really special to our family it was really special to me my wife is on the board of trustees there now I mean we that's that's where we go back to visit that's what we want to do when the Celtics aren't playing is watch Butler and, and that's continued and will always continue but the biggest thing was about a year in or so, I started going to some of those retreats where a bunch of coaches would get together, and, and there were college guys and there were NBA guys, and it was so interesting listening to the NBA guys talk. It was so interesting the level of detail that they were putting into the game. Everybody from advanced scouts that were presenting to assistant coaches to you know front office, whatever the case may be, the amount of time and thought that they could put in the game was incredible, and I just felt like if I was going to make a move, it would have to be to a place that 
would offer me a chance to get a PhD in coaching. And, you know, it really has stretched me unbelievably. It's been a great opportunity as a coach. Um, the hardest part was the emotional tie to the Butler and still continues to be. But, you know, obviously this place has been terrific. It's been awesome to coach here. The ownership, the management, incredible. And I felt supported from day one. I felt supported when, you know, I was, I'm learning on the fly and, and trying to figure out, you know, how to manage this 82-game schedule and trying to, you know, mix in some things that maybe work in college that don't work here, but try a couple of things that maybe not a lot of people are doing here that, that I liked in college. And, you know, I've kind of been given the freedom to do that. And it's been, uh, it's been a lot of fun. If those two situations in the Final Four had worked out differently, if it won national championships, would anything be different right now, do you think? No, not one thing. Um, there's not a guy on that team that hasn't gone on to do good things. They're all good kids. None of them are defined by that Final Four experience, which I think is really cool. You know, I think that a lot of times, and we talked about this when they were going through it, this can't be the highlight of your life. Now, this is a big-time moment. This is a bunch of fun. But, you know, you got to utilize these experiences as you grow and go on. And, and obviously the two guys that get the most recognition are Gordon and Shelvin, um, who are playing here tonight against us. But I think the the biggest thing is just how connected those teams were, how tough they were, how together they were. And that continues to this day. You know, they always say that champions have reunions. Runner-up do, too. You know, I think that, you know, we, we had a pretty special group. More painful one or the other of those two defeats? You know what? I think that they're both painful because you're so close. Obviously, I thought in the Duke game we played about as well as we could play, although in neither game we shot it very well. In the Connecticut game, we just couldn't hit anything. And, and you know, it, we had a heck of a lot of good fortune along the way to that Connecticut game where we, you know, we tipped one in and then, you know, we had the series of fouls against Pittsburgh and, and we, we advanced and then we somehow came back against Florida to win in the Elite Eight. And I still don't know how we won that game. And, you know, maybe that was our, our good fortune catching up with us in that second half. Last time you've watched either of those two losses? I've never watched the Connecticut loss in full. And I watched the Duke loss as we got ready to play Duke the mm -hmm. next year. And I felt good about how we had played. Like I, we were getting ready to play Duke with Kyrie before Ky Kyrie actually hurt his foot in our game. And um, I thought that the Duke team with Kyrie was better than the team we had played the year before. I mean, mm -hmm. you think about that Duke team. They had Kyrie with the basketball, Mason Plumlee rolling to the rim. And around them at different times, they had Singler, Nolan Smith, Seth Curry. I mean, you're talking about like that's a really good team and good luck guarding that spread pick and roll in college when you make the jump to the pros is there something that you're not sure of at that point is there some fa a, facet of coaching in the nba that you're not quite sure that you're all the way there you're not quite comfortable with yet? there's a lot of things that i didn't know that you know kind of hit me as we were going along and i think the biggest thing that people can prepare you for to talk about it but just the lack of practice time i mean I looked at it the other day, and I think we're on practice 43 right now. I mean, if we were in, in college right now at the end of February, we'd be on practice 80-something. <laughs> in our final four years, I remember I think we had, by the time the year was up, you had 95 to 100 practices if, if you count some of the two-a-days at the start of the season. And I think that you don't get that opportunity in the NBA, and the games hit you so quick. And, you know, you've got to balance all of the preparation and need for preparation with – playing with clear mind and, and fresh legs and you know we do a lot of things where we try to 
really prioritize that here and I think it's gotten more advanced over the three years that I've been here as far as you know my adjustment period to it was that first year what you expected more challenging you expected less challenging it was just really challenging period because I you know the biggest thing again was adjusting to the new schedule but then you know I knew that that we were going to have some struggles obviously anytime you trade away the guys that that we traded away right before I took the job and we were going to be young and and all of those things but then to have the amount of change in the middle of the year too was really difficult and you know hey Rondo was not able to play till mid-January at that time he still wasn't able to play in back-to-backs and so we had a lot of change and that's not something you deal with a ton in college you know you're not you're not getting the playbook ready for the guy that gets traded on a Wednesday to play on Thursday in college you know you're that's a big difference and I marvel when I see teams so fluidly just put people into that and they do so well. Was it tough to gain the respect of players because you're coming in, you're a guy in his mid-30s who didn't play in the NBA. Was it challenging to earn that, that respect? I never thought about it, Chris. And, mm-hmm. and, I, and I felt like, and I'm big on what you can control. So as a coach, you, you work as hard as you can. You try to do the best job you can. I think you acknowledge to your players that you're not going to be perfect in normal conversation and casual conversation you acknowledge that you know I'm going to do everything I can to figure this out I'm going to do everything I can to expedite my learning curve but just know that I'm working on it and I'm going to try to be as good as I can be and try to help you to become as good as you can be and hey not everybody has a great experience but I've never really been worried about whether or not if I need to be here just to gain somebody's Mm -hmm. approval you know, when, when I first got the job at Butler, I called Sean Miller, who was the coach at Xavier at the time. Now he's a coach at Arizona. And he said, I said, what's the biggest piece of advice? Because he had worked for Thad at Xavier and then replaced him. And now I, was, I had worked for Todd Licklider, who, you know, was a really successful six-year head coach at Butler who was moving on to Iowa. And uh, he said, hey, just be yourself. He said, the, the only time that I've really been disappointed is when, you know, I've thought, well, this is the way Thad did it. I have to do it this way. Or this is the way for me that Todd did it. I have to do it this way. I think you just authentic. You be yourself. You work as hard as you can. You pour your heart into it. And if, if that's not good enough, you can sleep at night. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, it's not good enough. You know, I can, I'm okay with that. Um, and I think that you have to be comfortable enough to feel that way when you're in the position of coaching. And coaching's a hard job. Yeah, I would think it's important – for for a guy like you and for any guy coming to the NBA from college to game plan wise to always kind of be on point always make sure that these guys can trust what you're saying like I give an example of Thibodeau when he was in Chicago you know he he, whatever at the end he, he kind of grinds down on people but everyone in that locker room would swear that when he put something up on the board they bought into it they knew that if they followed his game plan good things were going to happen did you have anything similar where you wanted to make sure that what you put up there was you know was dead on that they followed your game plan that it was going to be on point you know I think that you you've got to watch a lot of film you've got to prepare the best thing one of the best things about coaching in the NBA is how smart these players are and how quickly they can adjust on the fly and when you're playing against the great ones how you can't throw them one look because they'll just expose it by the second quarter or by the third quarter and that's a blast and it's fun to be able to tweak and change on the fly and it's a great testament to these players minds and it's a great testament to all the experience they've accumulated both you know in college and then in this league 
um, in the amount of games that they've played. And, you know, my biggest thing was I'm just going to watch and be as prepared as I can for that game. I'm going to focus on one possession at a time. I'm going to talk about focusing on one possession at a time. And, you know, again, if it's not good enough, it's not going to be for a lack of effort. Throwing great players multiple looks, is that a lesson you learned the hard way at some point early on? Or, I mean, I think, you know, we can all watch and see that, you know, if you do the same thing on LeBron over and over, you're probably going to be in trouble. Um, he's going to figure it out. All those guys are are great players, not only for their physical abilities, but their minds. You know, the, there's incredibly smart, savvy basketball players that are leading this league. I mean, it's it's really remarkable to watch in person and to hear them talk to each other and to hear the communication that goes on with the best of the best. And it's a great example for our younger players to pay attention to and to pick up on. If you take the uber elite out of the mix, is there a player out there that has maddened you game planning wise? Someone that you you're like, man, that guy kills us, and I don't know why. <laughs> you know, I know. Greg yeah, there's, there's a game. There's a guy on every team. Yeah, there's a guy on every team like that. And you know, it's it must be that there's something that we feel like, from a percentage standpoint, we're willing to roll the dice on mm. because you can't take away everything. And that's the other fact of this league, and, and that can be a little maddening because in college you get three or four days to game plan. And, you know, even in the NCAA tournament, which seems like a quick turnaround, now it seems like an eternity. I mean, now you get a whole day and a half. I mean, that we don't get a whole day and a half hardly ever. And I, and I kind of think back to how rushed I felt getting ready in a day and a half in the second game of the weekend. But when you can get three or four days to game plan, you can take some things away. And especially in college, you can get used to that. And you just you're not able to do that as well here. And so again, these guys have to be able to do it on the fly. And you can't take everything away here. They're, the players are too good. The schemes are too good. And there's five threats on the court all the time to beat you. You incorporated statistical analysis in college. Have you found NBA players to be as receptive as college players would be? For sure. Mm. Yeah, the best of the best want to be coach and the best of the best want to know any little tidbit that can give them a little bit of an advantage yeah I don't think there's any question about it not everybody is going to respond to a number centric you know speech right it may not be how somebody's wired but everybody wants to know hey we're doing it this way to take away what they do best here's why we've determined this is what they do best Mm -hmm. and you know everybody wants to do that because they want to know how are we going to guard this guy or how are we going to best attack this team based not only on the eye test from watching film, but also based on what the numbers are telling you, because they know that, I mean, the players in this league, they're smart. They know that they need those advantages against the best of the best. You mentioned that you admire coaches and teams that can kind of plug guys in uh, in a sort of fluid situation. You haven't had that experience yet, but there's a reasonable chance that you will at some point with the way this team operates in trying to upgrade uh, every single year. I mean, do you just block that out from now? Is that one of the things you say, I'll deal with it when I have to deal with it? Or do you in, in any way mentally kind of prepare yourself for that moment that could come when this roster gets overhauled? Well, you know, I, I think we're, and we'll see, time will tell, but I think we're hopefully beyond that point of overhaul, right? We had mm-hmm. 41 people through the doors in two years. The kind of seamless transition that was made when Isaiah came, not only Isaiah, but Jonas and Gigi, the way that they kind of plugged into that team and that team went on a run 
after they came in was a really good sign as far as us moving forward and us being a little bit harder to play against, especially on the offensive end of the floor. Those guys have continued it this year. And I think, you know, after the season, like we always do, we'll sit down, we'll have a meeting, we'll go through our team, we'll go through the whole league. And, you know, the front office and the coaches will get together and talk about that and the draft and everything else. But then it's, you know, the focus is on how can we best help our organization. And there's a lot of conversation that goes into each and every person. It's, you know, it's, it's, we feel very fortunate that we have an empowering work environment. And, you know, coaches love coming to work. I hope the players feel the same way. But the players work really hard. Um, they play really hard, and it's a fun group to be a part of. And, and I think the biggest thing for us is to prioritize that as we move forward because it's a really fertile environment for getting better. You're listening to The Vertical Podcast with Chris Mannix. Have you ever been frustrated trying to buy tickets online? Most sites make it complicated, and they all try to sneak in huge fees at checkout. That's why you need to try SeatGeek. They've made it easier than ever to buy and sell sport and concert tickets. SeatGeek is the only place I ever go to look for tickets to a game or a concert. I have the SeatGeek app on my phone, and I just used it the other day to look for tickets to a Tom Petty concert. SeatGeek has taken all the work and hassle out of shopping for tickets. They put all the tickets available on other sites into one place, so you save time and never miss a deal. You can even set alerts for upcoming events, and SeatGeek will let you know if the prices fall. Even better, every ticket on SeatGeek is ranked based on value, so you can immediately find underpriced seats. And before you buy, you can use SeatGeek's detailed maps to see the view from your seat. Best of all, SeatGeek is always honest and upfront about the price. Unlike StubHub, they show you the full ticket price from start to finish and never try to trick you with huge fees on the checkout page. My listeners get a $20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase. To get your $20 rebate on tickets, download the free SeatGeek app, go to the Settings tab, and click Add a Promo Code. Enter the promo code MANIX, and SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first purchase. Download the free SeatGeek app and enter promo code MANIX today. Is coaching just coaching? I mean, when you get out there, is it the same feeling you had when you were at Butler, or is it, I know you've got better players that you're going up against, but when you step out there on the floor into that coach's box, is it the same feeling for you, or does, is there a different feeling being on an NBA sideline? Oh, you know, I think the longer I've I've been in it, all the way from my time as an assistant till now, this is going to sound sad, but the more like a job it has become, right? You take the emotions out of it. You have a job to do. You prepare for the game. You try to do your best to be as good as you can be in the game. And sometimes you have to adjust a lot on the fly, and sometimes you have to tweak very little on the fly. But you're just prepared for the next game. And even during the game for me, What I've kind of found myself is like at the end of games, whatever the case may be, I'm thinking about, okay, the next practice, what do I say in the locker room so that we can have a good next practice? What do I say in our next meeting? You know, how does this affect our next meeting? How does this outcome affect our mindset, et cetera, et cetera? You're just always thinking about what's next. The best part about coaching to me, other than the relationships and the people, is the challenge of the team dynamic and you know, how many human nature challenges there are out there when adversity or success hits. When you're in college, you're building a player for two, maybe three years. They come in as a freshman. Maybe they play, maybe they don't. But this is usually a two- or three-year window as you're building guys. In the pros, you're hopefully building a guy like Marcus Smart for 10 years for this team. Is it different at all, player development in the college ranks versus the pro ranks? 
You know what? And sometimes I, I get caught up in the term development too, but I really have always liked to refer that as player enhancement because I think these guys that came to us at Butler were good basketball players who were well coached and we were just adding little tidbits and thoughts to hopefully help them add a thing or two. Same thing here. These guys are really good players. Some of them have some weaknesses that they have to manage, but they have elite strengths and that's why they're here. That's why they're here. At the very least, everybody's got something they bring to the table that's elite. And I think that that's something that we as a staff really try to focus on is, okay, what are your strengths? How do you best soar with them? What's going to be applicable in an NBA game? And, you know, how do we make our practice more deliberate? Or how do we make our individual workout more deliberate? And then, you know, then we can manage some of those things we don't do as well or improve those over time. You've got a lot of, of good young players here. Marcus, to me, though, seems like the guy with the deepest well of talent, someone who could you know, evolve into something really special if given time and certainly developed uh, properly. What's your approach with, with him in particular? I mean, he's a point guard, kind of, now he's coming off the bench. I mean, how do you approach developing him specifically? You know, again, I think we look at it with anybody, and I think we've got a lot of good young players. And I think that with any of those guys' enhancement, we look at, you know, Rome's not built in the night. The finishing touches aren't put on something without a lot of thought, a lot of work, and a lot of time. And But in the meantime, let's soar with what we do well. Let's compete like no tomorrow every time we take the floor. And let's grow from those competitive experiences. And, and the best thing to me that Marcus does and Marcus brings to the table, and it's been this from, from day one of watching him play, let alone before he got here, was he – He's a great competitor. The guy loves to win. The guy loves to play the game to win the game. And, you know, I think that that's the thing that, you know, you can really get better if you play with that kind of effort and you work with that kind of effort. Is a point guard at all different just because I remember, God, when I was over here a long time ago, Chauncey Billups, his first year, didn't look like he wanted the ball at all. Didn't know anything about being a point guard. He was kind of force-fed minutes here and then subsequently in other places, and I think that made him a better point guard, kind of the trial by fire. Maybe that's not a uniform way of developing a playmaker, but is there anything to that, to, to kind of force-feeding a guy minutes at one position, that position in particular, to help him along the way? You know, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I think there's probably a lot of different trains of thought on that. I think that we go into every game, and I go into every game, okay, what's our – What's our best chance of attacking this team? How can we best, as a 15-person group, attack this team, utilizing the strengths of those individuals? So it's not necessarily about, you know, one guy. And, you know, I think the one thing that Marcus has done is he's really improved through his hard work in making kind of that tough floater and making those reads off the pick and roll when he gets into the paint. You know, but as our team is constructed now, He'll have the ball some, but he won't always have the ball. And it's important to learn both. It's important to be a player that has versatility that can play in both scenarios. You've got Danny Ainge. You've got your assistant coaches. In that first year in particular, are you the kind of guy that that leans on people and asks for advice about NBA-centric situations that maybe you're not familiar with? Or are you push through and figure it out along the way? Yeah, we do. And and I've been – and I'll lean on anybody that – will pick up their phone or um, certainly anybody that works here that I've, I've been really lucky to have um, not only great bosses, like I said, with our management and ownership, but 
just great assistant coaches. And the one of the things that I've really tried to prioritize in hiring assistants since since I've been a head coach and I saw and I listened to Todd Licklider talk about this a lot at Butler was just try to hire guys that work really hard, that are intelligent, that bring great ideas to the table, but are humble team first people because I think that that's going to rub off on your players. And, you know, I think we just have a home run with our staff. We've had the guys that are no longer here were great, the guys that have moved on to other places and the guys we have now. You know, that has helped me a ton in this transition. Are other NBA coaches on that list too? I mean, would you reach out to other? I'll reach out to whoever of those guys would be interested in talking. (laughs) Has Um, there been one? I've been fortunate enough. I've I've sat down with a few of them. You know, Rick Carlisle and I have spent a day together each of the last two summers. I've asked a couple of them at the coaches meeting to sit down and and probably Frank Vogel has been as open and, and helpful as anybody uh, in this transition. Right when I got the job, you know, I was headed down to Orlando. My head was spinning, and, and it was not just spinning because I was coming into a whole new situation where I had to basically relearn the game in a lot of ways. It was spinning because I was leaving a place that I was so tied to, and we had about a two-and-a-half-hour, three-hour dinner. And he's got to reflect back on that and say that I asked some of the dumbest questions he's ever <laughs> been asked because – because, you know, I'm just I'm trying to, as simple as possible, figure out how to best make this transition. And everybody's been very open. Everybody's been very helpful. And, you know, I learned so much from watching those guys coach every day. Did you have any second thoughts in between accepting the job and really showing up for that first day? I don't know how long it existed between that. but You know, I think that, again, you're so emotionally tied to home. You're so emotionally tied to that place that you know certainly you always think you know that was such a special time of our lives and at the same time when you make this decision you've you've weighed that and you have to be forward looking i don't think it can be like you can't look back because i think that that's not realistic i think that you have to be forward looking you have to try to do the best job that you can and hey i want to i want to do the best job that i can for the players that are in the locker room i want to do the best job that i can for you know, our staff and everybody else, our management. And then I've loved coaching here in front of these fans. They get basketball and they get hard playing teams. And, you know, as a coach, that's all you can ask for. I'll finish with this. Uh, you see a lot of coaches out there that are lifers that are in this game forever and they love it. They, they're almost addicted to it in some ways. Do you consider yourself the same thing? I mean, you're a young guy. Could you ever see yourself doing something else? Or do you aspire to do something yeah, else? Yeah, so so here's the deal, Chris. If, if I'm coaching when I'm 70, if you had to say, okay, do you think Brad will coach until he's 70 or not? I would take the under. <laughs> yeah, I would <laughs> what, take the what under. What is because the over-under? I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is, but I love coaching. I love basketball. You know, one of the things that has been fun now for our family is being out of college basketball. Like, we can put our fan hat on. And when you're in it and you're in the midst of it, it's all, it's your job. And I love being a fan. Like I'm loving being a Butler fan and being a fan of college basketball. It's so much fun to watch. I'll coach, you know, and until I'm not driven to do it anymore. And I've been really lucky to be in places where I've always just really enjoyed coming to work and being driven to do it. I don't see that time coming anytime soon. But I don't think I'll be coaching when I'm 70 years old. Let's put it that way. All right. The over-under is 60 and a half. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. Depends on, you know, it's funny because the one thing that, that you really appreciate coaching is 
is when it's all said and done and the years go by or all the relationships with everybody. And you can't get those kind of relationships. Maybe you can. That's probably not fair. I'm sure somebody has a work environment like that that's outside of sports or outside of that competitive arena. But those relationships that are forged through adverse times, through celebrating together on successes and those type of things, they're pretty hard to replace. And this is one of the reasons why I went into coaching you know, when I was 22 years old. I'm taking the under on 60 and a half, but close, but close. I'll get you like to 58, 59, and you say. I would say that that would be close because I'll have, I'll have a lot of time to work on my trampoline skills between now and then. <laughs> and so at the, at the very least, I'll have a costume on out there and I'll be doing flips and dunks and everything else. If you could be doing anything else right now, if it wasn't coaching, what would it be? I mean, I'm guessing it wouldn't be the pharmaceutical industry just to do that. It wouldn't be your, that'd be a good job, but not your dream job. If there was a dream job that isn't NBA coaching, what would it be? You know what, Chris? I have no idea. <laughs> this is not who I am. This is not like I, I don't think of myself as a basketball coach, but I can't see myself doing anything else. I like that. I love the challenges. I love the occupation. I love the the thrills of a good win and I love coming back into the gym and kind of that sanctuary after a tough loss and figuring out ways to get better and all those types of things. The one thing that I would say, and this is going to sound a little strange, but when we moved to Boston now, we're, we're surrounded by all of these great academic institutions. And it seems like every turn I make, which I still have to use my GPS everywhere I go, but every turn I make, I run into just an incredible place is I've, I've talked to my wife a lot. You know, if I get relieved of these duties, then I would, I would seriously consider going back and getting, you know, either going to law school or doing something like that or trying, I probably couldn't get into a lot of these places, but, and really looking at something like that after coaching is done. So whenever that may be. And, but again, I probably can't get in, so it's not going to. Well, if you need an alumni recommendation from Boston College, I can help you there. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Well, I'm just I'm just going to send my kids to camp until I, I get they like me around there. No, I think the the biggest thing is that I'm so lucky to do what I'm doing. I haven't put any time and thought into anything else, and I'll do this for a lot longer. That's for sure. Do you take losses less personally now than maybe you might have before? Because there's so fewer, much fewer losses, obviously, in the college ranks. I mean, you kind of got to have a I don't know, a, a, a Gumby-like uh, ability to let these bounce off you in some ways, I would think. No. <laughs> no, everyone? It hasn't happened. Um, and you have to move on. You have to be able to focus on the big picture. You have to be able to go in and communicate clearly what needs to be done to get better, um, which, you know, you don't always do when you're, you know, on an emotional roller coaster of a loss. But I think that losing in Scrabble sucks. <laughs> You know, I, I think that losing is just a really tough pill to swallow, and we're going to do everything we can to prepare to be our best in that next game. I think our, our guys, I hope, would say I don't get too high or too low, but I don't like to lose, that's for sure. Brad, thanks for joining me here. Thanks, Chris. It's the Vertical Podcast with Chris Mannix. My thanks to Brad Stevens for hopping on the podcast, but before I go, I do want to address some of the comments made by Oscar Robertson with respect to Steph Curry. And to paraphrase these comments, as many of you have already heard them, it is basically Robertson, one of the greatest guards in NBA history, suggesting that a guy like Curry and a team like the Warriors would have more trouble in his generation because the defenses were better. Even if we acknowledge that point, and I'm not sure that's true coming from Oscar Robertson, but even if we acknowledge that point, you cannot tell me 
You cannot convince me that Steph Curry would not be as great or greater a player in Robertson's era than he is right now. Right now, Steph Curry is the transcendent shooter of this generation. There is nobody in NBA history that can make shots off the dribble like Steph Curry can right now. We are watching something special in the making. A mid-20s guard who's able to do things that no guard in league history has ever been able to do. And sure, if you throw Steph Curry into another era, then maybe you could make things more difficult for him when he goes into the paint. That's when the hand-checking rules become applicable. That's when you can be more physical. Different things happened in previous generations that you could do to guards that you can't do today. That being said, Steph Curry He doesn't play in the paint all that often. Steph Curry makes his living from behind the three-point line. He can beat you consistently from 25 feet away. So what are you going to do when Steph Curry is running off two, three, sometimes four screens and knocking down three-point shots in your face? You think you can hand-check him out there? You think you can keep with him off the dribble? It wouldn't happen. Steph Curry is that good that if you plug him into another generation against teams from the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, he would still be the Steph Curry that we see today. One other point I want to make about players from previous generations. I respect the heck out of them. Don't get me wrong. But players from that generation were nowhere near as gifted athletically as the players are today. They might have been more disciplined. They might have adhered to stricter coaching. But they were not in the same league as the players are today in terms of athleticism. That's why I think a player like an Oscar Robertson would have a heck of a hard time sticking with a guy like Curry or sticking with a player as explosive as Russell Westbrook. That's not a knock on these guys. It just was how it was back in those days. But really since the turn of the century, the focus on conditioning and the level of athlete has ramped up considerably. You've got teams with multiple strength and conditioning coaches, nutritionists, uh, fitness coaches, all kinds of private coaches that are out there working with these guys on a daily basis. You didn't have that in previous generations. So as much as I love the players from yesteryear, all of whom were pioneers who helped make the NBA what it is today. If you put Steph Curry's Golden State Warriors in that generation, they might win 75 or 80 games. They were that good, and I think the talent gap would be that much different. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Vertical Podcast. Remember, subscribe and listen to new and archive episodes wherever you listen to the podcast. Please tweet me at ChrisMannixYS for any questions and comments. This has been a digital media production. Find your voice. Find your voice. Your voice. At Bed365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is 
finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.